John Gormley. Good to have you here. Thanks for checking in. Uh, Our final edition, of course, for uh, this week, we're taking the uh, commemoration of Remembrance Day uh, here tomorrow. So our gang uh, will wrap it up and we'll be back with you Monday. And I did announce this morning, uh, 24 hours after uh, telling you, and it was an amazing day yesterday, and I'm so thankful to all of you, uh, that I will be wrapping up uh, the last Friday of the month The Evan Bray Show will begin Monday, the 27th of November. Evan, a good friend of this show over the years, the retired recently chief of the Regina Police Service, former broadcaster, man about town, and uh, you're going to find Evan Bray to be a fabulous talk show host, and that'll all happen uh, the very end of the month. Well, speaking of policing and uh, criminal justice and law, the scourge of human trafficking, and we often... Uh, see it, obviously, in the trafficking of women for sex, children, and others. But recently in Saskatchewan, you remember the story that the woman from Bangladesh forced to work 10 to 12 hours a day in three little far-flung communities from Gull Lake to Tisdale to Elrose. Uh, two men uh, now criminally charged with human trafficking. Uh, that case is still before the courts. And uh, finally, charges were brought at the end of June. Uh, the woman, her documents held by these men, uh, living in a concrete wet basement, one of them alleged to have sexually assaulted her. It was a horrific story. So the scourge of human trafficking is being drilled down. A, a conference has been going on with Hospitality Saskatchewan, a summit on human trafficking. And one of the people involved in this is Julia Drydick, who is the executive director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking. And she joins me now. So great to be here today. Well, it's fabulous to have you here. And I know that uh, we followed your work over the years and the, the incredible work your group does. By way of orientation, we think of labor trafficking. We think of sex trafficking. What is the vast majority of reported cases you deal with? So both police reported cases and cases identified through the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline currently are overwhelmingly sex trafficking. So Mm. in the first three years that we operated the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline, um, about 70% um, of cases identified were sex trafficking, 6% being uh, labor trafficking, and 2% being both sex and labor trafficking, which is pretty horrific. So the, the hospitality Saskatchewan group did this. Why does the hotel sector and the hospitality sector have an interest in this? So unfortunately, um, and I, I know no one likes to note this, um, but the vast majority of sex trafficking in Canada is happening in hotels um, as well as in short-term accommodations. Um, so while, uh, you know, a lot of hotels are, are good organizations, they're trying to be family-run organizations, um, unfortunately, it's prevalent um, in hotels across Canada, but also we know it to be taking place in Saskatchewan. Can you give us a, 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 give us a profile? So, you know, how does it happen in a hotel? How do people who are using these women, uh, abusing them sexually, how do they end up in a hotel? I mean, and how does the woman get to that hotel? What's the profile of a case? So unlike what you see in the movies, um, human trafficking rarely involves smuggling people across borders or kidnapping. Overwhelmingly, a trafficker is someone the victim knows, loves, and trusts. So this can be... a boyfriend, a friend, a family member. Um, So there's a very extensive process of um, luring and grooming, psychological and emotional control and manipulation and threats that are used to coerce them into the commercial sex industry. 
So um, where we're seeing the gifts and the the preying on them and winning their confidence and and again, loving them sometimes we put in quotes, right? So most victims that we work with don't identify as victims and it takes a Mm -hmm. really long time for them to to know what's happening as exploitation. So when it's taking place in our hotels, um, it looks a lot like the escort industry. Right. Okay. Um, it's happening through online ads in places like Leo List. Um, it's also sometimes also happening through um, virtual cam work, which can be happening in homes. But where we see it in the hospitality industry, they're there, um, uh, you know, as escorts um, and uh, not necessarily handcuffed or chained to the radiators. Um, sometimes often presenting as independent sex workers as well. OK, so the the woman or the women are brought in. Uh, hotels used as a base. There's been an advertising blitz to pr- prospective uh, buyers. Then the sex acts are going on there and then they move on. Yeah. So traffickers often systematically move their victims um, from uh, city to city and across provinces. And they do this for a couple of different reasons. One is it keeps the victim isolated um, and dependent on their trafficker. So it's really hard to reach out for help. You don't know what the social services or support networks are. It keeps them isolated and under control. Um, but it also means, unfortunately, and, and this is pretty gross, that they can capitalize on different commercial sex industries. So they market the quote unquote new girl in town. Um, and it's something that can also drive higher price premiums um, for their own profit and gain. Julia Drydick, executive director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking. Who are these girls? Um, they can be anyone. Uh, you know, the vast majority, over 90% of victims identified um, in Canada are Canadian-born women and girls, um, and they can take any demographic profile. Um, traffickers look for folks um, that have vulnerabilities in their lives. They might be having problems at home, low self-esteem, they might be um, living in poverty, they might have substance use issues, mental health issues, and they prey on those vulnerabilities. We know that there are certain groups um, because of issues of colonialism and poverty and racism that are more vulnerable than others. But really, um, the demographic profile of someone who might be trafficked could be anything. Don't get me going on what my benevolent dictatorship would do to pimps, but don't get me started. Um, I, so the, the pimps or the traffickers uh, do this purposefully. Because sometimes one of their defenses is, well, you know, my girlfriend and I, and it just one thing led to another. Not so. Um, traffickers are very intentional about this. Um, but part of it is that they also know that when they situate themselves as a boyfriend or a friend, uh, it's that that emotional bond is really, really, really hard to break. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also really hard for law enforcement to be able to also then detect and enforce and to prosecute. Um It's gross to say, but um, many say that, you know, when you're selling drugs and guns, you sell them once and it's actually really easy to convict, right? You catch someone with some drugs on them. It's easy to be able to turn that over in the court of law. When it's another human being, they can be sold over and over and over again. And it's really hard to be able to pursue criminal charges and prosecutions um, because uh Trials are so reliant on victim testimony. It's a really, really traumatic process. Um, so they know that it's easier to get off the hook and to avoid law enforcement. Julia Drydick heads up the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking. Saskatchewan, you mentioned, this goes on here. Why here? It happens everywhere. 
Um, uh, I think also one of the things is that traffickers go to areas where it's easy to avoid law enforcement. So while there are um, some great uh, vice units and others that are focused on the issue, there is no provincial strategy to address human trafficking in Saskatchewan. Um, there aren't necessarily dedicated resources to identifying it either. And so it's an easy place to go where they can, you know, slip under the radar, um, make a pretty gross profit off of exploiting someone in some of the worst ways you can imagine, and then they move on to the next province. The the RCMP recently set up um, a trafficking unit, and apparently it's been picking a lot of people up on Highway 1, which of course is a Trans-Canada, but they do human trafficking, gun trafficking, and it's sort of an intelligence unit. But here, typically, is it because of our two national highways? I mean, you've got the Yellowhead, you've got Highway 1, the Trans-Canada. These are highways taking somebody somewhere, so this is one of the stops. It's one of the stops, and it's also where there is um, a market for exploitation. Um, so in any communi- community across Canada where, where there's a market where they can get profit, they're going to be trying to exploit someone to get that money. Often in resource communities, particularly when the oil booms on, when you've got mining towns, do you get an increased focus in those kind of communities? We do see a pickup, especially in these human trafficking corridors that I've mentioned. Um, so, uh, you know, again, where, where there's a market, basically where there's any urban center or economy in Canada, you'll see human trafficking take place. Um, and so we do know that that's taking place. There's also a really complicated and um, hard to, to reconcile with reality for Indigenous women and girls um, and the way that they are sexually exploited um, uh, through human trafficking, through murder and missing Indigenous women and girls, um, but also on the resource camps. How do ultimately these cases get solved? How does how does somebody say something's not right here? How does an officer detect it? What goes on? So um, uh, officers do have their own investigative techniques that look at uh, suspicious trends in online ads, especially where there's like one phone number connected um, and where they can kind of triage it to one person that might be trafficking multiple women. But more often than not, it's actually the survivor that saves themselves. So um, similar to intimate partner violence, um, it's usually um, that person being exploited who um, has hit their threshold, but also where they've been connected with community supports or they see the light to be able to exit um, where they're able to access that support to save themselves. So law enforcement focus on the bad guys, law right. enforcement focus on the traffickers. But overwhelmingly, when it comes to exiting, um, it's about having those resources in place to be able to support those folks being exploited. Um, to give them the opportunity to exit when they're ready. Can we talk more about uh, reaching out and survivors getting help? Yeah. You stay with us? Yeah. Julia Drydick is here. She's the executive director, the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking. Uh, do you have a question? If you have been watching this over the years, and of course this has gone on for decades, it's only been uh, in recent years, you've got advocacy organizations like Julia's and others that have drawn attention to it. Also, uh, the Canadian Trafficking Hotline, we're going to find out more about that. I'm John Gormley, 877-332-8255. If you'd like to chat with Julia, join the conversation. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.
with us, Julia Drydick uh, from Toronto, who heads up the uh, Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking. Uh, one of the uh, speakers at a very interesting summit put on by Hospitality Saskatchewan, highlighting the prevalence in the hospitality industry of human trafficking. And as Julia points out, there is labour trafficking, and we've talked about that before here, the case last June, uh, but she says uh, the predominant form of human trafficking is sex trafficking, often of young Canadian-born vulnerable women. Uh, One of our listeners says, is there anything service people or even citizens can look for? Are there tells? So the red flags we're looking for look a lot like intimate partner violence. So um, if you're working in the hospitality sector or um, even in restaurants or even if there's someone in your community, um, you're looking for someone who is starting to withdraw from their community and their networks. So if this is someone you know, um, they might be stopping to go to school, providing canned answers, not talking about where they're going. They've got someone new in their life that is taking over their entire life. Um, and so they're withdrawing from all of their social networks, being really secretive. Um, but they might also have weird, unexplained, expensive gifts, um, hair, makeup, dressing in new ways. Um, really, it's an issue of social withdrawal, and traffickers do that intentionally to isolate them, using the stigma of being involved in the commercial sex industry to distance them from their family and friends, to create that sense of shame so that they're completely reliant on their trafficker. But if you're working at a front desk hotel or if you're working um, in a restaurant, you're, you might be looking for signs of someone not making eye contact, um, maybe not having their own ID on them, having someone else speak for them. The signs can be really nuanced, but I always say, trust your gut. If something feels wrong, it probably is. Um, And there's no one specific way to intervene. So we always encourage people to call the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-833-900-1010. We operate 24-7 across the country. Um, And uh, we are also there to provide safety planning, advice, and we can also connect people to services in their community, but also law enforcement if it's necessary. The Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline, and that's run by the uh, Centre to End Human Trafficking, 833-900-1010. So the impact on the survivor, the woman who is actually able to get away or have this end, how long is that impact? Um, it, it can take years, and it's often something that an indi- individual lives with for the rest of their lives. So, um, you know... There's a huge amount of trauma that goes along with being trafficked. Um, often, uh, once you're being trafficked, you can be sexually exploited as many as, you know, 10 times a day for months, if not years on end. Um, so if you can think about the impact that that might have on an individual, it's huge. There's psychological impacts, there's health impacts, um, but there's also the fact that they have been stigmatized and pushed out of society. Right. Um, so um, becoming whole again, reconnecting with their families, their communities, um, figuring out who they are and what their dreams or aspirations are outside of their trafficker can take quite a while. Um, and we often talk to survivors um, who say that the, the impact stays with them for the rest of the rest of their life, even though there's some incredible um, resilience, healing and also power behind survivors as well. Julia Drydick is here. So the victim and the journey to having justice. What's the access to justice like? Difficult to get prosecutions? Um, I would go so far as to say is that there is almost no access to justice for survivors of human trafficking in Canada. So human trafficking trials take on average twice as long as any other trial in Canada. 
Um, the prosecution rate is abysmal. I don't even know if there's good numbers on it. Usually traffickers get charged with um, other and kind of related charges, um, but the actual conviction rate on trafficking is incredibly low, if not non-existent. Um, and for many, because it's such a long process and because it's so incredibly traumatic having to retell their story, but also there's not enough protections where traffickers don't have to literally stand face to face in front of their trafficker when they're providing their testimony. So they're being cross-examined cross and similar to other issues of sexual assault and rape. They're, t they're told that they did it to themselves, right? Um, and so why would you go through all of that knowing that there's unlikely to be a conviction. And of course, this was on the list, and regular listeners will know how much I rant about the end of mandatory minimums. There used to be a mandatory minimum sentence on human trafficking. Yeah, and that was overturned as being cruel and unusual punishment according, according to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So oh. um, there is there is a bit of a revolving door right now for traffickers. Um, and um, we've even heard horror stories that they continue to traffic women from uh, inside jail even when they are incarcerated. My goodness. So 833-900-1010 is the human trafficking hotline. When you talk to people as you're doing at this, last word, what should we as communities, what should the provincial government here do? What can we do as a community on this? I think one of the most important things is actually increasing awareness. So we conducted a statistically significant public opinion poll of Canadians to gauge the level of understanding of human trafficking. And while... Something like 73% of Canadians acknowledged that human trafficking was a bad thing. 77% uh, had no idea how to spot the signs. Over 50% didn't know that the vast majority of human trafficking happens by someone that the, the survivor knows and trusts. Um, and 57% weren't aware that it's happening uh, potentially in their community. Um, so we're looking for all the wrong things. Movies like The Sound of Freedom and Taken paint this picture of it being an issue that only happens yeah. in other countries to other people or that involves kidnapping and smuggling. Um, and I think the more that communities are equipped with the knowledge of what this really looks like, we need to be having conversations at our dinner table with our kids. We need to equip parents with the tools to know how to have those hard conversations. It has been great having you by. Don't be a stranger. And uh, travel safely, and hopefully we'll see you again. Thank you so much for having me. Julia Drydick, Executive Director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking, and they operate the Canadian Human Trafficking Hotline, 833-900-1010. I'm Gormley. This is 980-CJME and 650-CKOM. John Gormley, thanks for checking in wherever we find you on this day. Hey, top of the hour, I was telling you about a brand new book out by uh, Romy Christie, and it's about her parents, it's about her family. Uh, Sandy McPherson, uh, for people in the legal circles, and you have to be a good old age uh, when Justice McPherson uh, retired, uh, Queen's Bench Justice of Great Distinction back in the 70s, and it's a book about the connection of Sandy and his wife to a unique little city in France. And they actually sat down as they were aging. They'd lived over half their lives in Saskatchewan. They'd retired out to BC. And when the last one of them was gone, they wanted 
to spend the rest of time in Le Touquet in France. And why? And it's a story of wartime in the Second World War. It's a story of love. Uh, Saskatchewan fused throughout this. It's just a great tale. Uh, See You in La Touquet, a memoir of war and destiny. Top of the hour, and it's a very good shout-out, obviously, to Remembrance Day and that generation in the Second World War, the greatest generation, who gave of themselves, they enlisted, they served, and in some cases they didn't come home. So we'll talk to Romy Christie here, top of the hour. Okay, other stories, and gosh, there are a lot of them. Did you catch how the CFL ended up getting implicated into the latest outbreak of anti-Semitism? The story started with uh, a man who, on his LinkedIn profile, uh, is very well known as being on the National Executive Committee of CAPE, the Canadian Association of Public Employees. Uh, He's the president, and this is the third largest of the federal civil service unions. It's called CAPE. So the guy's name is um, Camille Awada. And Mr. Awada made, quote, anti-Semitic comments in past years. Uh, He's apologized for them, but he couldn't escape his past. And... Gosh, he just goes on and on. Israel is the lunatic, illegitimate, Zionist, terrorist, apartheid state that is the root of all evil. Um, The European Zionists are the true Aryans. And this is just the crazy stuff. I mean, it's one thing to root for Palestine, but it's another thing entirely, as Camila Wada has done, to spew the kind of vitriol and hatred toward Jews that is called anti-Semitism. So Camille Awada, president of this union, the Canadian Association of Public Employees, stepped down. Well, guess what was also on his LinkedIn profile? He is the head of the CFL's statistics crew. (laughs) And apparently... um, used to boast that he was the head of the stats crew and in Ottawa since 2014, he's had a group of uh, six different people he works with and they do statistical information on game day teams, online training development and operational feedback. So this is where he actually works for the CFL when he's not in his daytime job as a public service union leader in Ottawa and an anti-Semite. So the CFL says he is a seasonal, part-time CFL employee. We are aware of the social media posts. He is no longer employed with the CFL and will not be moving forward. So uh, Camille Awada uh, resigns as president of the union. Then the CFL has booted him on his uh, side hustle. And all of this about anti-Semitic posts. And that was the big story yesterday. And uh, it, and this, it wasn't hard to find. I mean, people went on his Facebook posts. They went on some of his other socials. And 2015, 2019, just goes on and on about, you know, the devil is the Jews. And it's just, I don't know where people get. I'm learning, sadly, I think like a lot of us are, in this particular 
time we're in. Um, you know, I think is it the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht? Kristallnacht was that night when the Nazis went around. It was called Kristallnacht, the night of crystal, because of all the broken glass everywhere. They had made Jews identify the Jewish-owned businesses. You know, you had to put a Star of David on the door. You had to identify as the place of the Juden. And that, of course, then the Nazis, when they were, this was before the war, um, had completely engulfed Europe. So this was the night they vandalized the Jewish businesses throughout Germany. Contrast to the Jewish restaurants in Toronto, where the Twitter mob and the real mob were harassing diners, standing outside and saying, don't go to Jewish-owned restaurants. Yeah, in Canada. I mean, gee, purse. I just makes me wonder. Okay, I thought I would have a little time for this today, and I think I might. Do you know the name Ian Brody? Uh, if you think about it, you will. Brody was a chief of staff in Stephen Harper's office. He was also at one time a senior executive of the Conservative Party of Canada. So Brody is a conservative. Uh, a keynote address he did back at the end of October to the Canadian Association of Financial Officers. So it was a finance meeting. And the name of his talk was called The End of the Social Justice Agenda. And this is on behalf of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. It's now been published as a paper, and it's the transcript of his remarks. And he talks about how the social justice agenda, and if you have kids in social justice at school, there's a little subset of radical left-wing school teachers who teach social justice. They believe in this stuff. Uh, there's university professors. There's law professors whose area of study is social justice. And I used to laugh as a law professor, maybe you would be better to be studying justice, justice. Uh, but social justice has been a thing, certainly emerging for the last 30 years. Ian Brody argues social justice, by its nature, drives wedges that undermine our common sense of citizenship. Because, of course, everybody is either oppressed or oppressor. Uh, everybody is divided on identity politics. I mean, that's the nature of social justice. I said it a bit earlier. Marxism used to need economic inequality. Neo-Marxism, in the common space we live in now, needs you to be fighting. And you can't fight anymore on the haves and the have-nots as much. So you fight on... The BIPOC, the marginalized, the this, the that, uh, colonialism, and everything else. That's the nature of what's become modern discourse. And that's in large part thanks to social justice. But Ian Brody argues that social justice also locks us in to zero-sum thinking that kills economic growth. Because you either have or you don't. You prosper or you don't. And of course, the whole nature, he talks about some of the challenges in the economy, but he says three policy trends are starting now to displace the social justice agenda. And the agenda hasn't disappeared and it will not disappear, but social justice is being crowded off the public agenda. Now, for those, some of us who have watched the advent of social justice and thought, 
you know, it's one thing to say social justice, feed the poor, assist the dispossessed, that kind of thing. I mean, that's what we all used to think. But this idea of a radical societal shift based on your identity, based on race, based on other things, this isn't going to end well. So Ian Brody, in the end of the social justice agenda, argues three modern policy trends today are displacing social justice. Do you know what those three trends are? You will next on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. Ian Brody, who was a chief of staff uh, back in the Harper years to Prime Minister Harper, also a senior executive, Conservative Party of Canada, delivering uh, for the Canadian Global Affairs Institute a speech to the Association of Canadian Financial Officers back end of October, the end of the social justice agenda. And he argues that three policy trends are starting to displace the social justice agenda. Social justice is always going to be with us in one form or another, but the prominence it's had, he argues, is being crowded off the public agenda by one Governments are ratcheting back climate policies, and they're doing this to alleviate the costs they're imposing on consumers. Fanciful near-term climate targets are being postponed. Consumers, especially on low and fixed incomes, need breathing room. And he talks about how uh, loss of Russian natural gas in the market in Europe has European countries restarting coal-fired power plants, scrambling to buy out uh, the world's surviving natural gas supplies. He said the mild winter helped them last year, and they are praying for a mild winter this year because Europe is in some trouble. So he points out that Canada has become a global outlier on climate and energy policy because our policy since it was instituted right after 2015 relies on a penalty-heavy approach. So governments here increase consumer costs as a way to have you use less fossil fuels and ultimately reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So Ottawa, he says, is late to the game in a rethink on why you're punishing consumers. And he said these penalty-heavy policies are expensive, and they're getting more so for consumers. So governments everywhere else, and Canada's an outlier, and even Canada will start to move on this, are simply now starting to ratchet back climate policy. It's just hurting too many people. Number two on the policy implications, the spiking cost of government debt. Interest rates on long-term public debt are heading higher, Governments have simply extended themselves too far. So as governments have been trying to find ways to buy us social justice and buy us certain things, uh, governments around the world have to start setting priorities. Third policy implication is war. And you've got Russia, Ukraine, Iran also launching its war plans. Uh, you have China able to take military action or intending to against Taiwan, likely before the end of this decade. Uh, You can even assume the North Korean regime is making its own plans to exploit a crisis. So take North Korea, China, Iran, and Russia, and these four actors 
are in a loose coalition to dismantle U.S. power, to destroy defensive security alliances, and sow division and contempt. So even if there is not a world war, there is enough warlike action going on that governments begin to move away, putting a greater priority on security than on social justice. He argues, when we ask, what do we do now? He said, we have to put, and this is Ian Brody, uh, Canadian Global Affairs Institute, former chief of staff of Stephen Harper, we have to put social justice issues behind us. It creates bad political economic dynamics. It makes a political issue out of the distribution of economic status goods between groups in society. We've politicized the economic output and ability of people to eat, to buy, to sell, to prosper. And he says, moreover, once the social justice agenda gets established, and this is interesting because I think most of us who have studied it know this, it never gets satisfaction. Social justice theorists constantly find evidence that some group, subgroup, or sub-subgroup are losing out compared to someone else. So the goalposts continue to move. So there's always more intrusive demands made to correct inequalities, and those demands never end. Redistribution begets more redistribution. The demand for spending to resolve inequality keeps growing faster than government's ability to raise the revenues to do the spending. So his argument is the social cohesion in, in society and the common sense of citizenship is often undermined by social justice. And he says, for example, on cohesion, if you want to overcome Russian and Chinese information operations, you need domestic social cohesion. In other words, we all get along. We all have a common sense of purpose. Social justice actually divides us. So Ian Brody's piece on the end of the social justice agenda asks, how long will concerns over climate costs, inflation, and global security, how long will they crowd out the social justice agenda? How long will we focus on creating an economy that actually continues to grow rather than redistributing what we have? He says, I don't know. But I do know the sooner we confront the high cost of penalty-driven climate policies, the high cost of loose monetary policy, and the coordinated threats from Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, the better off we will be. So, good piece. And I've just uh, hit the high points. Uh, Ian Brody, The End of the Social Justice Agenda. You can find it in the places you find stuff that makes you think. I'm John Gormley, the latest from the New Center Now. And then Romy Christie's book, See You in Latouke, a memoir of war and destiny with a particular Saskatchewan connection. On 980 CJME and 650 CKOM.